And good morning to you all. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, looking at verses 11 through 21 today. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1040. I've entitled today's message, The Return of the King. We'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we will study this text together. Let's bow now. Lord, we do thank you for this precious day, for these few precious hours when we can gather as a church family and worship you. We thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that as we consider this very important passage from Revelation, you would help us to, to be able to see in our mind's eye the images that are described here in the text and help us, Lord, to build our anticipation for this great day. Help us, Lord, to prepare ourselves for that day. Lord, be glorified in the time that we spend in your word today, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Revelation began with these unforgettable words. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. In other words, friends, there is a great day coming. A day in which our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, Two natures united together in the one person when this being will step off his earthly throne. He will break through the clouds and he will make his return trip to the earth. And on that day, he will do for his people what they could not do for themselves. He will conquer their greatest enemy, the devil, along with all of the devil's hosts. He will destroy the beast and all who bore his mark. He will vanquish sin and death and sorrow. He will wipe away all of the dark kingdoms of the earth, and he will inaugurate his own kingdom of righteousness. And the whole book of Revelation is dedicated to this great theme. Revelation even lays out the sequence of events which will lead us from where we are now to that coming kingdom. Book explained that first, Christ will remove his church from the earth by resurrection and translation. Then he will pour out God's righteous judgments on the world of unbelief. And finally, Christ will descend from heaven with his church to begin his righteous rule. And friends, after 32 sermons from the book of Revelation, we have finally reached that final climactic event. This is the week, this is the text. This passage gives us a glimpse both of the glory and of the terror of that coming day. Glory for Christ's church, terror for Christ's enemies. We're going to study the entire passage together, beginning with verse 11. Please listen as I read. The Apostle John is the writer. He writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes 
war. Okay, let's take this verse one statement at a time, beginning with Christ's initial appearance in the clouds. It says that Christ is going to emerge from a heavenly portal. John writes, I saw heaven opened. Now, you understand that heaven has been our Lord's home since the end of his first advent. It's where he resides right now, even as I speak to you. And there in heaven, our Lord dwells in unimaginable glory. He is robed in all of his post-resurrection splendor. He is being worshipped day and night by angels and saints. He is basking in the love of his Father and in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And he is just waiting there. He is waiting for his Father's signal so that he will know it's time to make his descent. Friends, the moment his father gives him that signal, he will step off that heavenly throne. He will walk through that portal and he will break through the clouds, make his descent, and claim his kingdom. And it will be unlike anything the world has ever witnessed before. Matthew 24 describes it this way, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And they will see him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Revelation 1.7 says, Every eye will see him, perhaps informing us that Christ is going to descend very slowly allowing the earth to rotate beneath him so that every human eye will be able to see him as he makes his descent. He's coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, why will the nations wail at his sight? Well, behold his posture, next part of verse 11. John writes, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And Christ will be seated on that horse. Here's why the nations will wail when they see the appearing of Christ. It's because he's not going to be on the back of a donkey like he was at the first advent. Remember, a donkey is a, a beast that a king would ride when he's on a mission of peace. Nothing threatening about a donkey. That's how Christ rode into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry on his first advent. But the next time he comes, he'll be riding a different animal altogether. He'll be riding a white horse, which is to say a war horse, the kind of horse that a king would ride. So all the nations of the earth will wail because they will understand he's not coming back on a mission of peace. He's coming to fight and he's coming to win. He's coming to claim his kingdom. The nations will know that this means the long rebellion is finally over. They will have no chance of prevailing over this mighty being. So I say what a terrible day it will be for the enemies of Christ. To see this being robed in his splendor, riding on his war horse, breaking through heaven itself coming toward them and realizing there is nothing they can do to stop him. But friends, what a glorious day for the people of God 
as they see all of those promises that they have been clinging to for generation after generation, all of those promises finally being fulfilled, their vindication finally coming, the kingdom they have prayed for finally, finally coming. In fact, we noticed Christ's titles here in the next part of verse 11. It says the one sitting on that horse is called faithful and true. You see, terror for Christ's enemies, glory for Christ's people. As he rides, he's called the faithful one. See, ever since humanity's fall into sin, God has been promising his people that one day all that's wrong with the world will be made right. He's been promising a great reversal of sin's curse. He's been promising the end of sin and death. He's been promising the end of the devil's reign and all those who follow him. And here... As Christ makes his return on the back of that war horse, we have a promise kept. We have a thousand promises kept. And so he is called faithful. And he's called true because, you see, the annals of world history are filled with men and women who have claimed to be messiahs. Men and women who have promised that they can bring utopia if only we will give them enough power to do so. But what has the result always been? It's been more tyranny, more death, more destruction, more human misery. But here, friends, we have the true Messiah, the Son of God himself. And when he comes, when he comes, he will reverse the curse. He will be the one who will not, who cannot fail. This is reinforced at the end of verse 11. It says, And in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see, from his coming onward, there will be no more miscarriages of justice. Every decision will be right, perfectly in accord with the spotless character of God himself. This is what we have to look forward to, my friends. And if you ever have any doubt about Christ's resolve in bringing this to pass, just look into his eyes, verse 12. It says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. This speaks to our Lord's holy zeal, his absolute commitment to righteousness. It speaks to his complete opposition to all the forces of evil. If you doubt that he means business, just look at those bright burning eyes and know and know that he has the power and the zeal to bring this to pass. And then look at what lies on his head, second part of verse 12. It says, on his head are many diadems. Now, a diadem is a crown worn by a king. And Christ will wear many crowns when he returns because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no authority higher than Christ's which means there will be no one able to oppose Christ when he comes again. Then the last part of verse 12, it says, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now this speaks to our Lord's privileged position. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ knows everything about you and me. He knows it all. He knows our actions, our thoughts. He knows our motivations. Everything that we try to keep secret from others, he knows it all. Scriptures say that, that he pierces down into the very soul of a person. 
And yet you also understand that it does not work the other way around. We do not know all there is to know about Christ. We're finite. He is infinite. His glory is greater than our comprehension. And so he knows us, but we don't fully know him. He has a name that no one knows but himself. And friends, we will spend all eternity learning more and more about Christ, learning names that we never knew, learning facets of his character we've not seen yet, not in its fullness. That will be life in the kingdom of God. And then we look at the last part of verse, excuse me, the first part of verse 13. We see as he returns, he is also covered in a robe. It says he's clothed in a robe or a cloak dipped in blood or soaked in blood. A cloak soaked in blood. And then... Now what we have here is imagery coming from Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4 which is a prophecy about Christ. It begins with a question. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments, splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength? And then the Messiah replies. He says, It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Another question is posed to the Messiah. Why is your apparel red? Why are your garments like his who tends in the winepress? Messiah replies, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is going to come through this heavenly portal. His eyes will be blazing with fire. He'll have many crowns upon his head. And he will have a robe that is soaked in blood. This robe will communicate that the day of vengeance has come. That long promised day when all of God's enemies will have to meet their reckoning. And that cloak, that robe will anticipate his total victory over all of his enemies. And then we come to the second part of verse 13. It says, And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So, verse 12, he has a name that we are not privy to, but now verse 13, he's given a name that we do know. He's called the Word of God. That means Christ is the living, breathing Word of God. He is the self-expression of God. He's the fullest revealer of God to man. And he is the agent by which God's eternal decrees are executed. And on this day, friends, he will be executing the decree of vengeance. This is our Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor. But now we come to verse 14. Here the passage takes an interesting turn. Here we find that when Christ returns, he will not be coming back alone. In fact, there's going to be a great multitude in his train. Look at this verse with me. It says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And so there's going to be a great army coming with Christ. 
You notice they follow Christ. That's because he's their head. They're wearing white linens because they are pure. They ride on white horses because they are sharing in his victory. They will also share in his reign. You'll also notice that they carry no weapons. And that's because the fight is his. They're coming with him. They're going to be witnesses to the great spectacle, but they themselves will not be joining the fight. They won't need to. Christ can handle this on his own. Friends, who are these riders? What is this army? Well, you know who they are because they're you and me. This is his church, his church coming back with him, coming back to share in his victory and reign, just as he promised. Do you remember the words of Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27? There Christ made a promise to the church. He said, persevere in your faith, and I will give you authority over all the nations, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. And then in chapter 17, verse 14, we have this description of Armageddon. It says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. And then it says, the church will be with the Lamb as he conquers. And then just a few verses prior to today's text, Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8, there we saw the marriage of Christ and his church. And we have these words, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. Then these words are added. It says, It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice the exact parallel in the wording. Fine linens, bright and pure. They put them on at the marriage, and now they're riding out of heaven, coming down with Christ in those very same linens. This is the church of Jesus Christ, his bride. Together they will make their way back to the earth, and they will reign this over this new kingdom as king and queen. Now verse 15, Behold our Lord's sword. It says, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, this sword is just a visual representation of Christ's words. Christ is the living word of God. And with his words, he will conquer all of his enemies. The devil, the Antichrist, and all of those who have joined with them. And look at his determination, second part of verse 15. It says, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So he will rule them. He will rule the nations. This comes directly out of Psalm 2, verse 9 means that from this point on, Christ will no longer abide human sin or rebellion. He will take firm hold of the reins of power himself. He will bring his righteous standards to bear on the world. And he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God, meaning that his judgments against sin will be so full, so complete, that it'll be like a man treading upon grapes in a winepress. It'll be that easy for him, and it'll be that complete. And then verse 16. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Here's another name. King of kings and Lord of lords. Last reminder of the supremacy of Christ. He will be the king who rules kings. The Lord who rules lords. My friends, this is what Christ will be like at his second coming. He will be shining with all of the splendor of his divine glory. He will be on the back of a white war horse. His back will be covered with a blood-soaked robe. He will have fire in his eyes, crowns upon his head, and he will be coming with a sharp sword in his mouth, coming to bring his judgments on the world of unbelief, but then to bring about a whole new world order, to bring that long-promised kingdom, to be a faithful and true Messiah. This is what he'll be like. This is what he will accomplish. And friends, what a contrast we have here to the common picture of Christ, do we not? You know how our society looks at Christ. His image is everywhere. It's on television, it's in movies, it's, it's in comic books, it's on toy shelves in department stores. His picture is everywhere. How does our culture look at Christ? Well, they see him, first of all, as a very, as a very frail man, skeletal, he's so thin, pale skin, like he's very sickly, very feminine character, flowing, long, light-colored hair, light blue eyes. Very soft-spoken. Sometimes our society even looks at Jesus as a comical figure. Hey, like the other day, I was in Battle Creek, and there in the Lowe's parking lot, I saw a car with a Jesus bobblehead doll stuck to the dashboard. That's what our culture thinks of Jesus. Just a, a funny man who lived long ago, wearing his robes and sandals, speaks with a soft voice, wants us all to get along with each other, but he is certainly no threat to any of us. You know, friends, there is a gentle side to Jesus. Jesus himself said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He does have a lamb-like quality. A dove-like quality to him. This is the side of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, eager to bring young children up on his lap. Uh, the Jesus who is quick to forgive the repentant, who, who befriends those that the rest of society has rejected. It's the Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is a gentle side to him. Yet, friends, we must not neglect this other side to Jesus, the one that we see here in Revelation 19, the warrior king Jesus, the one who wears crowns and holds a sword and rides on the back of a war horse, the one with fire in his eyes who's ready to conquer his enemies, to reign over a kingdom. We must not lose sight of this Jesus. Friends, we need to remember every part of Christ because you and I need the whole Christ to live the whole Christian life. 
in times of grief and guilt, we need the merciful Christ. We need the Jesus with arms wide open, ready to receive us. We need the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. But friends, in times that call for resolve, for courage, we need the other Christ. We need the mighty Christ. We need all of Christ for all of life. And so let's all work together to build a true biography of our Lord. The merciful and the mighty sides of him. Jesus, the one who receives sinners, and Jesus, the one who conquers his enemies. Let us have all of Christ for all of life. Now, very quickly, let us look at verses 17 through 21. Uh, This portion of our text explains the final fate of Antichrist and the false prophet and all who take their stand with them. First, verses 17 and 18, we see the proclamation of their end. John writes, Then I saw an angel standing in heaven, or excuse me, standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. The angel said, Come, gather for the great supper of God. Verse 18, To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and and great. Now, we have a purposeful parallel in this chapter. Remember, in last week's text, from this same chapter, we learned about the marriage supper of the Lamb. How one day, all of God's people are going to be a part of this great celebratory feast, and there will be laughter and celebration, and there will be eating, and there will be joy That's the destiny of all of God's people. But now at the end of the chapter, we have another supper. We see that the enemies of Christ will be that supper. Fed upon by the birds of the air and the the beasts of the field. This is a warning to all who would persist in their rejection of Christ. You will miss the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will become the supper of beasts. And then verses 19 through 21, we see the fulfillment of the warning. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast, remember that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, those are all the rulers who have allied with Antichrist, with all of their armies, because they have gathered them to fight against Christ. They were gathered to make war against him who was seated on the horse and against his army. This is the battle of Armageddon. Antichrist and all of his allies gathering all the forces they have, arraying them in battle against the returning Christ. But then verse 20, we find their end. It says, And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is, they were cast into hell. Verse 21, and the rest, which is to say all of those armies that had gathered. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was seated on the horse. 
And the promise was fulfilled. All the birds were gorged with their flesh. Boy, what an anticlimactic ending to the battle of Armageddon. Antichrist and the false prophet in all of their allies, in all of their armies, all arrayed together in battle against the Son of God. And how does the battle end? Not a single fire shot. Christ speaks, and they're all flattened. That's the end of the battle. The sword that comes out of his mouth and slays all of the armies is just his speech. That'll be the end of it all. Now, friends, with this passage, we have reached the climax of this book. This passage is an invitation for us all to consider our own relation to Christ. So, which army do you belong to? Do you belong to the army that will ride with Christ at his coming? Or do you belong to the army that will wage war against Christ when he comes? Which army do you belong to? What is your relation to Christ? My friends, this passage gives us a motivation to come to Christ in repentance and faith, to throw down our weapons of war against him and to embrace him as our king. You know, Jesus is a good king. He's the kind of king that you would want to be ruled by. He's a king who is prepared to forgive all of your sins, to receive you into his own household. He is the king ready to give you all of heaven's glories and then a kingdom that will last forever and ever. So won't you come to him? Won't you confess your sins to him? Express your repudiation of those sins. Embrace Christ as your Lord. Become a part of this glorious heavenly army, this this bride which will accompany him at his return. Don't be left with the others. Don't be among those who will face the terrible judgments of the returning Christ. But you know, for the people of God, this passage does something else. It also inspires our hope. Inspires our hope. You see, friends, what this passage means is that it doesn't really matter if darkness, the darkness is presently winning in the world. It doesn't matter. I know times seem dark. Every time you turn on the news or you flip through your feed, you see dark story after dark story. It can sometimes become overwhelming. But understand, just because the darkness is winning today does not mean it's going to win forever. Because in the end, Christ is going to come. And he's going to have the victory. He's going to bring an end to all of the darkness And there will be nothing left but his light. There will be life and joy and glory when he comes. And all that's wrong with the world is going to come to an end one day. Let this passage give you hope. Let it also give you courage as you face the trials of the present. Remember that whatever trials you're going through today, they are momentary. But this will be forever. The day is coming when all sorrows will disappear. Live like you believe that. 
live like the trials of today are just a light and momentary affliction we must endure to get to that great glory. Live like you believe this text. Now let's pray together as we close. Lord, we thank you for this text, and we pray that you would help us to find here a motivation to be rightly related to you, to claim you as our Lord and as our Savior. Help us to look at this text and find hope. Help us to find courage here so that we can stand in our day knowing that, that we are on the winning side. And Lord, we pray that you would hasten the day of your coming. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.